the death of the SDR, what was it that damaged you so much that you want to get rid of SDRs? Because you're on a crusade. You're just like, okay, <laughs> this shit is not working anymore. Why don't you people wake up? What was that moment for you when you thought something needs to change? Yeah, sure. And, you know, I've been an SDR and I've, you know, I've come up through sales development and through sales. And you're right. I had a very lousy experience, you know, in, in both parts, especially obviously the sales development part, as many people can probably attest to if, you know, it's, it's a required stepping stone to get into sales. And I think that's very unfortunate. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, harms the sales profession and, and denigrates it and holds sellers back that they have to kind of go through this, this, this role, which I don't think is a sales role. It's really a marketing role. I think a lot of people kind of confuse that the role is meant to do what's known as prospecting. And the purpose behind that is to generate and qualify leads for sales. And that's marketing. You know, you kind of, you go out there and you do telemarketing, email, LinkedIn, um, direct mail to try to generate an appointment and that's marketing. And it's really the lousy form of marketing. And when I got into B2B, I wanted to try out sales. I was previously you know, doing some marketing. I was like, you know what? I seem to be kind of a people person. I want to check out sales. And then, you know, I, I went to this company and they said, oh, well, you got to be an SDR. And I was, didn't really understand at the time. And I was like, okay, but then I get into sales. I, I wasn't really sure. It was sort of like, you know, I was very young, 23, 22. And I just was like, fine, you know, give me a job. I just, you know, like a lot of people at that point who get into sales development and I hated it. I mean, I was making 80 plus telemarketing calls a day. I was sending out emails and trying to personalize them. And, you know, and I, you know, I, I was getting nothing and I was even door, I was going around New York city, you know, even trying to do some field marketing, basically like door knocking. And that wasn't working. I, I, I resorted to like bribery. I was, I, I, I was trying to get people like a free lunch. I was like, Hey, cater lunch with the salesperson, you know, and that, you know, fell flat. And, you know, the, the, the few leads that I would generate from it were, were pretty lousy and sales didn't really want them. They just wanted the, the website demo request for marketing. And so I was like, there's gotta be a better way. And then that was kind of, you know, when I, I started to, to like, you know, sit there and think, okay, what, what, what can we do here, folks? Because this is, this, is, this is problematic. And then that was the very beginning when I was at this big company and I saw that you know, really sales development or prospecting was really ineffective, that that kind of put me in this mode of thinking of like, okay, there's a big problem here and we need to solve it. And then everything after that was this journey I kind of went through of learning, unlearning, you know, experiencing, discussing with other people to eventually produced me, uh, led me to say, there's a lot of problems plaguing sales, prospecting or sales development is one of them. We can also talk about the sales assembly line or the, you know, buyer handoffs among what I consider to be limited or stunted sellers. You know, there's the AE, the sales engineer, the SE, the CSM, or the customer success manager, the account manager. There's all these subdivisions that kind of like prevent you from doing the full sales job. And I think that prevents, you know, the fulfillment and efficacy of a seller and growth and responsibility, you know, to be on the sort of assembly line type of thing. 
and I've been in a role where I was a stunt, you know, a, a stunted seller, just an AE. And then I've been in a role where I was an AE CSM and like a full sales cycle role. I didn't have to do any prospecting either. And it was great. It was wonderful. And the buyers loved it. And I loved it. And it was so great just to grow these customers, to grow your book of business, to build a portfolio of customers. I mean, that's what really sales is all about. Right. And, you know, and then also I've, I've, I've lived through and I've experienced quota and commission, and we could talk about that. And I, I had this bitter taste in my mouth for that. And then I started to look into about those things and, and research them and realized, wow, they, they really harm sellers and they're not in sellers best interest. And they're not designed to benefit sellers at all, actually, and it actually harms everyone. It harms the company. It harms the buyers. There was so much misunderstanding about these topics. And so I felt like I was slowly piecing parts of the puzzle together, learning about all these different problems, they all kind of connected together. And so I, I pinpointed to these four key problems, prospecting or sales development, the sales assembly line, quota and commission. And I call out the predictable revenue and I give them a hard time because they solidify and, are, and preserve and fuel and have codified the first two. They have codified, you know, sales development and they've, you know, and they fuel that and they, and the same for the sales assembly line. And I think that's really holding sales back. I think that's, and marketing and, and in general, I think B2B, you know, companies. And so that's why I, I present a new model called the buyer centric revenue model. I help people kind of understand all of this stuff, unpack everything, the history of everything, and then, you know, show them how they can at their own company. I, I give all sorts of examples and anecdotes and case studies and data, especially in the new book update that's coming out soon, even more as all these new data and evidence come to light, people are sharing their experiences. You know, it's great. People are talking about this stuff. LinkedIn's a wonderful community. You're very active on it, sharing your experience. Joseph, I love it when you weigh in. Um, and I hope more people do who are listening on uh, to this. But, you know, helping people also look at their own company and be able to, to, to make an analysis of this stuff with their own data to prove aspects of this model. And then if they want to take gradual steps towards transitioning and adopting the model to whatever extent that they want. And we can talk about what the buyer-centric revenue model is or the positive flip side of it. You know, I know I've just kind of gone off a little bit on, on, on what I'm against but it's very much a positive movement as to what I'm for. And maybe Joseph, I don't know. I know I've just kind of rambled a bit, but if, you, if it's a good time to tell people very quickly what the positive buyer-centric revenue model is, or if we want to come back to that. We can come back to that. I've got a question, if, if you don't mind my interrupting there. What is stopping, what do you describe is, is what I post on LinkedIn and describe as traditional sales. I think a lot of people do that. It's, it's traditional. It's, it's grown from the past decades of how sales has been executed and, and strategized and, and ultimately done. And, and we kind of, we both realized, well, wait a minute, something, you know, that, that, that just doesn't work here anymore. From your experience, talking to traditional sales organizations that want to, to make that transformation and, and that transition to a more biocentric sales strategy. What is holding them back from doing that? Why haven't they done that already? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's two parts to that. It's like, why haven't they made the transition? And the first part is like, well, what has changed since the 1980s? Let's just say, well, you know, why the shift that is driving this? And basically what's happened is the modern internet and technology has changed how buyers want to interact with marketing with sales and how marketers and sales can, can and want to interact 
with buyers. So that landscape has changed, yet the, the marketing sales practices that are in place have not. And so there's this uh, tension, this conflict, this straitjacket that I call it on marketers and sellers that hold marketers and sellers back from more productive and fulfilling careers, gives the, the buyer a lousy buying experience. You know, marketers and sellers have more of a lousy profession, you know, professional experience. Companies are held back in their marketing and their, you know, in their sales efforts. And so their growth is harmed for that. But basically buyers today, so let, let, let's rewind a bit. In, in the sort of the pre-internet era, it was very hard for marketing to connect with buyers, to educate buyers, to bring educated and interested buyers to sales, to give buyers all that information that buyers nowadays have readily, you know, thanks to marketing or, or, or from their peers who marketing is also influencing, you know, all that, all the information out there on the internet and all these different ways that, that marketing teams can, can go out there now, they didn't have before. And so basically companies were sales led, like, you know, what happened is, okay, marketing can't bring buyers to sales, at least not that well. So what, 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 what should happen is that sales should go out to buyers. And so you had outside sales, which was sales would go door knocking or field marketing, and then digital door knocking, which was telemarketing. And so sales would go and do, you know, telemarketing. And then this kind of, this practice of sales kind of operating in the absence of marketing, um, you know, to, to, to try to, yeah, just go sell to buyers with, you know, is prospecting. And, and, and that's, you know, it, and that's sort of like this, that the phrase comes from like digging for gold, right? You're trying to find the few nuggets of gold out there, you know, Hey, are you ready to, to for a sales conversation? Are you ready for a sales conversation? It was kind of, it was really lousy and, and sellers didn't like it. And they would do this part-time. They would do prospecting part-time. This is the eight, you know, prior to the nineties and the early two thousands, they would do this part-time in addition to their sales job. And sellers obviously hated it because it was this like, you know, crummy, you know, way of sort of annoying buyers who, who didn't really want to hear from them. And it was so laborious and they had to do it constantly in large quantities to get any results whatsoever. And then as soon as they got a meeting, that's all they want to do is just, you know, help this buyer to evaluate and to facilitate their purchase and then help them implement and help them be successful and do their actual sales job. And so given that they couldn't do part prospecting part-time and their whole sales role is when, first of all, the initial sales assembly line split came about. And this was known as the hunter farmer split. So it became so obvious. It was like, whoa, guys, the seller can't do their sales job plus prospecting part-time. So why don't we just divvy up the sales job? And so we'll create the hunter farmer split. And that was the SDR AE split where one, one person would be an SDR slash an AE. They would do prospecting in the initial sale. And then you had another seller to do the CSM bit and, and help with upsell, cross-sell retention. And that was the birth of the sales assembly line. And then it was still very apparent that prospecting was too laborious, too time-consuming, too fruitless, too wasteful. And the seller who was, you know, the SD slash AE seller, um, all, they just want to do the sales bit. So even that was too much. And so they decided in the late 90s, early 2000s, okay, guys, we got to specialize again. And we got to specialize prospecting full-time into this role known as sales development. And so they took prospecting off of sales's plate the predictive revenue model, you know, that Aaron Ross created and wrote about in his book, Predictive Revenue in 2011, which came out in 2011, is based on how Salesforce did the sales assembly line and how they did sales development in the early 2000s. So basically, most B2B companies today are marching to the tune of what's uh, some of what Salesforce did uh, as part of their broader marketing and sales efforts in the early 2000s. And it is debatable 
to what extent sales development and the sales assembly line harmed or helped Salesforce back then relative to everything else that Salesforce could have done within their ability and knowledge at the time. And that was in the early 2000s. And, and so, you know, so much has changed. If again, we go back to the modern internet and technology and how buyers, marketers, and sellers can interact, but we are stuck in this straitjacket of a model that, 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 that keeps us in these old ways. And so that, that is kind of the background there. Now, why does it persist? And we haven't talked about quoting commission and predictable revenue model is not responsible for quoting commission. Quoting commission have existed way before predictable revenue model. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at some point, but why does the predictable revenue model, why does the sales assembly line, why does the sales development persist today? despite the fact that it's so inefficient and ineffective that mo modern marketing can basically can and should replace sales development is what I argue we could talk about what that looks like. And I think that a full, um, uh, I want to re, I want to bring back what a, really a full sales, full sales cycle seller is, a legitimate seller, a real and complete seller, which is not what it is term to be today, which is butchered, which is, okay, a full sales cycle seller is an SDR slash an AE, a partial marketer and a partial seller. No, no, no. I think that a real seller is an AE CSM combined, no prospecting. Marketing does their job and generates leads. Sales helps these folks to you know, facilitate their purchase, proposals, negotiations, overseas implementation, brings in other people as and when is needed. Let's say someone from product to, to help customize you know, the, the solution or answer really, really rare technical questions that the seller can't handle or whatever. But it's the seller is, is there to, to manage this business relationship, annual business reviews, whatnot. And I, so I think we need to bring that back. And so I think the, the, the reason the reason why folks haven't changed is because it's similar to when B2B software is trying to tell their customers that they need to make a change, right? You need to say, hey, the old way is no good and here's why. And here's the new way and it's much better and here's why. And here's, how, and here's the cost of not switching and the impact. So it aggravates you enough that you're willing to pay and get the ROI of the new model. And you then need early adopters and then case studies, blah, 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 blah. So for me, it, it, you know, you can't make your point of view and you can't get people to make huge change with a few LinkedIn posts. It, it's a book and predictable revenue in 2011 helped to change you know, B2B, you know, and, and, and there was all sorts of sales books and marketing books that have kind of come around that. So it's like, I think people need a guide. They need a roadmap. They need, they need, they need, you know, to, an explanation. They need a codification. And so I'm trying to show people in this book, the full picture and how they can understand this and all these dots that I connected, they can similarly connect and apply it to their own company. And they've got the playbook to kind of run with it. From, from your experience, when you talk to, to sales managers, or leadership, do you feel that there is a difference between a startup, small, medium-sized businesses and an enterprise? Uh, because I, I know, uh, having worked with large corporations, that it there is this, let's say, old-school mindset. And a lot of these hyperscalers in, in B2B and, and cloud computing, they even outsource lead generation. So that doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's, that's, that's even worse than doing it in-house. With the upcoming generation with, you know, millennials and, and Gen uh, Z or Gen Z, do you see that a change, a shift in mindset of, or at least, you know, the question coming up, I think we need to do something differently. Is there a difference when you talk to startups as opposed to larger companies? Yeah, I think that 
first of all, younger people and also younger companies are wrecking, are, are, you know, the more modern, more tech savvy, the more nimble, these problems, let's say for, for younger companies aren't calcified at their company. They don't have all these vested interests. And it's like, you know, the cost of change is much bigger. Right. And it's like this, you know, it's hard to unwind all of that. And that, and that, you know, but whereas if you're a younger company and you want to compete against the old big dinosaur in the room, you have to not only have a better product, you know, but also a better marketing and better sales. And that's, and so, yeah, you, you need to have a competitive differentiator. And I also think that younger companies and younger people are recognizing the change in buyer preferences that buyers are basically doing, are, are further along their purchasing journey before they ever get to sales. They're like 80%, you know, or, or plus or whatever, before they ever get to sales, thanks to marketing. And so buyers lean more so on marketing. Marketing has way more power than they did before to influence a buyer's decision to purchase and therefore revenue. So a lot of people haven't woken up to that sort of change. And so this, this, this thing in the past where B2B companies were sales led, where you hired a whole bunch of sellers um, to go out and do prospecting and ideally sellers that had a book of business, you know, tenured sellers that could bring in a bag of potential leads, whatever. And like no marketing or the marketing job was just to get contact information for them. That has changed where now marketing is basically generating these website demo requests of very, you know, very interested and very educated buyers that are like layups for sales, which is great news for sales because they don't have to do any of the crappy prospecting. They could just do the sales bit. Um, and, you know, and, and that's fantastic. And so, you know, if you look at some like, you know, basically buyers, buyers don't want to be on the receiving end of prospecting. Like they, they want to be properly marketed to. And I have a very negative view of prospecting. I, I've sort of come to the realization recently that prospecting is basically spam. It is, and the, and the way I define spam is it is unconsented, intrusive marketing solicitations to a buyer's private inbox, whether it's their phone or their email or their LinkedIn or their physical home address. Then that personalization, quote unquote personalization is just a way of making that spam seem less spammy and making it less generic or less automated or more humorous or trying to uh, pattern interrupt, you know, Hey, I noticed this content on LinkedIn. Here's it's relevant to what we do. Do you want to speak to sales type of thing? And yes, you can make your, 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 your spam, you know, especially on email, like less spammy, but it's still spam. And buyers may make, you know, if it's really good personalization, maybe a buyer pays attention to it more. Maybe they take a demo, but on net, you know, it's not worth it. And it, you know, it does more harm. And, you, and so I think that this talent that's in that role, the SDR talent, and I was one of them, I want to liberate them to more productive and fulfilling careers in marketing, sales, and operations, which they're anyways trying to do as soon as possible. Like they're suffering. They really are suffering. It's a lousy role. There's 39% turnover. There's 11 months of productivity in that role, you know, so it's 14 months, you're 10 year, but three months ramp time. So 11 months productivity, and basically only 48% of SDR teams are hitting quota. And that's because I think they're set up to fail. And so I, I think that's tragic for us people who want to get into sales, they have to kind of go through this meat grinder, and they're kind of lured into it thinking it's a sales role. And, and I think that's tragic. And then for the sales assembly line, I think, you know, trying to yeah, help these help these sellers kind of be liberated to have the whole full sales role and be able to kind of create and grow these relationships and, and, and have a book of business. And so, yeah, I, I, think, I think younger companies have a huge leg up over the competition it, and I'm, I'm getting a lot of great feedback from them because they're like, yeah, this is great. I don't have to waste all this time, money and on like on a growth playbook, what that's going to cost me in growth, like less growth, harder growth, 
it takes longer and it's gonna be more costly and I have to give up more ownership of my company to VCs who can fund this madness because I need to hire like 300 SDRs. And so it's a better growth playbook. And I think a lot of CEOs are wise are wising up to it. Now, here's something that's very tragic about these bad practices for sales. These bad practices harm primarily sales development and then sales uh, and then marketing, but they are pretty much primarily or exclusively ad advocated for by sales. Like Aaron Ross was a sales leader at Salesforce. You know, it's not markers that beat the prospecting sales development drum. They, they, I mean, I mean, and then what's the product? It's Salesforce as a product. Of course, you know, he's advocating that. Of course you did. Don't, don't ever ask a barber if you need a haircut. <laughs> yes. And I, I point this out in my book. It's a great point. It's like, if you look at one of the benefactors, it's like, Wow, Salesforce CRM has way more users and a complicated Salesforce CRM that requires more administrators. And so you have SDRs, AEs, SEs, account managers, all these complicated lead routing rules, mapping criteria, blah, blah, blah. And it's madness. And so I think that, you know, there that could be some cabal or some conspiracy. I'm pretty sure that Salesforce is also controlling the weather these days. That's just my that's just my take. But no, no. So so yeah, I think that unfortunately, yeah. The, the, the vanguard of progress in B2B is not going to be sales. It is, and I have seen it so far since I published the book four or five months ago, I think it's going to be marketing. I see that the fundamental of the four problems, I think the most fundamental and biggest problem to fix with the most evidence and the clear solution is prospecting. That modern marketing has, has replaced it and that a lot of companies are already doing this to a large extent. They're moving away from sales development and they're moving more towards proper marketing. And that is largely driven by marketing because marketing is now in, in the driver's seat these days. They have increasingly more sway over ownership and a bigger seat at the table than sales. And so, and, and marketing right now is, and there's a huge movement within marketing to liberate themselves from sales development. Now they don't put it in that terms as I do. I'm helping them to do so. They are fighting against the effects of sales development, the effects of prospecting. They fight against having to do gated content in order to generate MQLs, which I define as the contact information of an uninterested buyer so that sales development can go and do their spamming or prospecting. Marketing fights against lead intent data or lead scoring, which is trying to prioritize which of the SDRs should annoy based on these buyers assumed intent to eventually request to speak to sales. And my proposition is that these buyers, if they were properly marketed to and exclusively more properly marketed to, they would come to the website when they are ready um, and they don't need SDRs and they don't want SDRs to prematurely pester them to go speak to sales, which I think turns a lot of them off and pushes some prematurely to sales because they didn't, they didn't know how to say no to the SDR or they want a better price from their incumbent or they want a free lunch or whatever, or they're just looking to kick the tires and browse and just get some free information, which they anyway should be able to get on the website. But, you know, okay, so the SDR is going to take a debt, whatever, they'll take a demo just to learn. And that doesn't do very well for sales. And most salespeople, most of the time are missing quota, something like 60 to 70% of salespeople are missing quota. And so- because they're Go more, ahead. because they're more focused on on hitting the KPIs. Because that's that's what makes SDRs and and salespeople do things. It's it's the KPIs that they need to fulfill. How many touch points do you have? How many contacts have you called? How many emails have you sent? So, I think once we have gotten rid of these KPIs, we free up sales as an organization to do what they are supposed to do. And it also, I really love that, that you said it, Nelson, that it's, it's the prospecting part is moving towards marketing because there it is scalable. Prospecting in sales is not scalable. How can you prospect more in, in a sales organization? Well, by hiring more people to do 
the the number of calls they're supposed to do but in terms of marketing in terms of content content lives forever right you just need to be clever about it and you know uh, things that that chris walker and and refine labs do which 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 i love absolutely love that's how you be the magnet for the right buyer at the right time whenever they're ready to click that button yeah i want to talk to you guys oh absolutely and I, this is something i forgot to mention earlier I think one of the biggest problems holding sales back and sales development back is that they don't understand marketing. And I, this is true of my own transformation. When I was in sales development sales, I didn't understand marketing. I, you know, I had no idea. I was in sales development and sales. And so that was my world. And it took me a long time. It wasn't until I went to go work for a marketing software company that marketing sold into marketers. And then I, I learned a lot about marketing from other marketers. And I was doing a lot of marketing that I eventually was like, oh my God, this is what marketing is. And this is what marketing is capable of. Oh, I see. And then comparing that to sales development, I was like, ah. And so a big thing that I, I try to help people in my book and, and in general is to help people understand what is possible with modern marketing and then to compare marketing to sales development, which a lot of people are already doing. And that is very much exposing the inefficacy of sales development relative to, to proper marketing and therefore warranting a repurposing of talent and resources in, into where you know, to which side of your bread is buttered on. And so, yeah, I think that's a huge thing. And that's probably the biggest resistance or, or, or skepticism that I get from sales and from sales about is like, well, what, what is marketing? Like, I don't get it. And so that's something that I'm trying to work on helping people to edge, you know, and I need to do a better job of that. I'm not, I'm not doing a, a, as great of a job as I think I could be. And so I think that, 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 that's definitely one thing. I think you mentioned something about the KPIs and the, and the metrics. And so, yeah, there's a big problem right now where marketing's metric is the is MQLs, which is the contact information of an uninterested buyer. And so they've got like short-term MQL quotas in order to feed the sales development machine. Sales development has monthly meeting quotas. Sometimes they also have activity quotas, how many calls, how many emails. And sales development is then, you know, half of their salary is withheld pending their quota attainment. And that's the same for sales. Sales also has these quotas, you know, short-term revenue production amount tied to half of their salary, which I think is, which is what I believe to be a commission. And so I, I think that that's intended to kind of pressure them and intended to instill short-term mindset, intended to all sorts of bad behaviors. And so again, like I, I'm opposed to quota. I think it's a bad type of sales goal. I propose that for, for a sales, you know, goal that they should have an annual revenue goal, just like any other department, like the company as a whole, which you track monthly, you track quarterly, but it's divorced from commission that, that sellers be paid a full salary and a bonus, as opposed to what I think a commission is, which is half salary, half your other salary pending quota attainment, and then some rare small possibility that you get a little bit more than your full salary with uncapped commission. Whereas I propose full salary plus a bonus. Let's use a cake analogy. With my compensation model, you get the whole cake plus icing. That's the full salary and bonus. That's why every other department wants that. That's why it makes sense when you go to work for someone else. It's a, it's a good compensation plan. Whereas, whereas commission, it's half the cake, you know, and you have no idea if, when, and how much the other half of the cake you'll get. And maybe if you have, you know, you exceed your quota, which we know is very unlikely because most sellers most of the time fail their quota. And we and there's a whole bunch of other problems with quota I talk about that. Yeah, it, 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 it's really an undesirable form of compensation, an undesirable form of 
of, of seller performance metrics and, and of goals. And I'll say one other thing about metrics. It is very misleading. And I say that a quota, a revenue quota, your revenue attainment, it, it's very misleading to use that as the sole metric to evaluate a seller's performance and efficacy. You have to evaluate a seller holistically using many different metrics like you do for other people in other departments. And you should be looking at, 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 at not just revenue attainment, but you should be looking at churn, at sales cycle, at win rate, at, at product expertise, at professionalism, at feedback from buyers and customers. You know, you should be at expansion. And, and I, you know, because of, of course with my seller, they're also, they, they handle the initial sale expansion and retention. So you're also looking at expansion and contraction and you're looking at, you know, re retention or, or right in churn to be able to say, hey, is this seller, you know, we're, we're looking at the whole full picture here. Are they, are they really good or is it a, you know, do they just get a, you know, because there's, there's a lot of factors that influence, you know, the, the F, you know, or inform a seller's revenue attainment. And so to be able to kind of look at everything, you need to be, look at all that type of stuff. But oftentimes people just look at revenue attainment, which is very misleading because you can have a seller at the same company who has more revenue than a seller at the same company who's, who's, a, who's like far better seller, because maybe that lucky seller got a whole bunch of good leads for marketing. These leads were you know, amazing. And like, they, they were buy no matter what and the sell, even though the seller is lousy, whatever they, they, they bought. So it doesn't tell you the whole full picture. And that's just like one little aspect of what's wrong with just measuring sellers partially. So I know that was a lot of rambling. I wanted to kind of get that on the table and then just kind of open it up to you. So, so there it is. Just <laughs> let it all out. It's, it's a therapy session. It is. It really is. Nelson, I really love that you, that you mentioned these different metrics and, and the different KPIs, and especially how the customer feels, the customer satisfaction, the, the retention rate of, of the customer, because that really makes it biocentric. Like when even the KPIs are biocentric instead of vendor-centric or sales-centric, that's, that's when change happens. So I really appreciate that, that you brought that up. And you, you mentioned one thing right at the beginning about short-term thinking, which leads me to, to the question, do you feel that's one of the reason that sales is so proactive, intrusive, and maybe even aggressive with prospecting at the moment, with reaching out to as many people as possible because of the short-term gratification or the short-term uh, let's say KPIs and metrics that they need to fulfill. Could that be one of the reasons why they are still holding on to that traditional strategies? Yeah, totally. And like, I've been in that shoe, you know, it, it, the whole point of a quota and the commission is not to be in the best interests of, of sellers, but it is to, you know, pressure sellers to pressure buyers and commission in particular is a false carrot and stick, but yeah, the, the short-term quotas, like, Hey, you got to produce a certain amount of revenue in a monthly or quarterly basis, which again, for me, I believe that it should be annual and divorced from commission. You should be paid properly and you should be fretting about your paycheck and your paycheck shouldn't be outsourced 50% to the buyer's decision to purchase. And buyers know that, like buyers feel that and like buyers hate commission. And there's a lot of companies that have moved away from commission, Backblaze, Culture Amp, Pluralsight, Microchip Technologies, you know, Bamboo HR, you know, a whole bunch of others. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm trying to bring this stuff to light because they're, they're seeing a light. They see all the wonderful effects of what it does to their sales team. They professionalize and really elevate sales. They're not trying to treat sales like crap. And so, you know, yeah, I, I think that, that what, what, what the real goal of that to do is of quoting commission is to create that short-term mindset to pressure sell, to, to under-promise, over-deliver, to uh, omit or obscure relevant facts. Now, I'm not saying that if you have quoting commission, it like 
sellers will do that. I'm just saying that this incentivizes some sellers some of the time to do that. And it has it incentivizes the wrong behaviors. And I, and I think it really denigrates sales. I think it turns off a lot of people to sales to say, oh, quote and commission, the whole pre- unnecessary and counterproductive stress and pressure, which the buyer feels, so it's definitely a lose-lose. And, and you see that all the time. And I've, saw, I've seen it. And so I, I, I think that it's a huge competitive advantage for companies to, to attract customers and for talent to say, hey, sellers, we're not going to saddle you and shackle you with, with crummy prospecting. We're going to give you marketing is going to do their job and do, and, and we're going to free them to, to generate proper leads that want your help. And you're going to have the full sales job. You're going to, you know, you know, help these buyers properly. You got full growth, responsibility, ownership, like build a book of business, a portfolio. Great. And also you're going to have proper goals and metrics. We're going to measure you holistically. We're going to give you an annual revenue goal and, you know, and then we're also going to pay you properly a full salary. You don't have to worry about money. You're going to be paid like everyone else. You're going to get the whole cake and the icing. And, you know, you could just focus on what you want to do, which is your, 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 your sales job. And so I think that that is a very, like for any sellers, sales leaders right now, particularly younger sales leaders who want to be courageous, who want to be forward thinking, who want to be at the forefront and the vanguard, not let marketing steal all the glory here, guys, come on. Like I, 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 you know, I, I, I came, I had to leave sales. Okay. Like I, 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 given this, this stuff, it turned me off to sales that I had to go to marketing. And I think that's quite tragic. Like, and I think there's a lot of people that are like that as well. It's like sales could be great, but it's, it's crummy the way it is. So I'm going to go do something else and, you know, get out of sales, maybe go to management, go to operations, go to marketing, go to leadership, whatever. And, and I think that's super, super sad. And so I, you know, part of, part of this book and a part of what I'm trying to do is a bit like a vendetta, because I think that's oftentimes what innovators and startup and founders or entrepreneurs do is they see problems or they experience these problems and they decide there's a better way. And that's kind of what happened to me. I had a really lousy experience and I bet a lot of people can identify with some of this to certain aspects. And I want to prevent that from ever happening and help the people who are currently in such roles or experiencing such things to not have to do that again. And and I can relate to that because, you know, similar background, I, I started in marketing actually, and then into sales at, at different startups and, and SMBs and then worked with large corporations as well. And I also felt that you get stuck if if you don't have that kind of go in for the kill mentality and just do what you've been told in terms of you know hit your KPIs pick up the phone and blah 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 and, and all of that kind of war language and 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 kind of hunting and and fighting and to chase up some leads and and you know go in for the kill something like that that kind of really drew me back from from sales because actually with as you said with a marketing background and then coming into sales all of a sudden you see there's a lot of things that just doesn't make sense. And I think having both backgrounds, especially when when you talk to sales managers and sales leaders, having these backgrounds from marketing and sales, they're in the best position to initiate change, to, to bring it, to bring the topic, you know, on, on the table and, and just have a discussion um, about it with their management, with board of directors, whoever they need to talk to. But I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and you, you said it, having that insight into what is marketing doing and then into what is sales doing, that really enables you and empowers you to, to initiate a change. Because most of the time, I mean, that's something that, that I've, I feel and, and see, you have these silos still. There's sales, there's marketing, there's not even one 
membrane connecting these two and then you know marketing is doing their stuff sales is doing their stuff and it's just this battle and friction between sales yeah. and marketing it's a bit like personal relationships right it's like you're in a tiff with someone you have no idea why that person's angry with you and they have no idea why you're angry with them and like but then you have like a you know kind of a heart-to-heart -heart chat and you and you understand that other person and they understand you and so i think having the yeah the insight that i have had and you've had and other people have had into both marketing and sales it kind of gives you that like, oh, okay, so I get what's going on there and I'm able to piece these two sides of the puzzle together, right? Because marketing sales pretty much kind of join at the hip. You know, one's the point guard, the other is the center, right? Marketing, you know, does all these dribbles and tries to creative and arts and crafts and whatever and woo buyers and then sales slams, it, you know, dunks, you know, dunks it in. But, you know, yeah, to, to this kind of warring language, the old school form of sales where you're this hungry hunter who's got to go out there and stalk a buyer and then toss their carcass once you finish with them to the next seller, you know, it, it, it's really bad. And, and I think it's one of the disservices that, and, and, and these influences are very pervasive among the old guard, some more older folks who grew up in the eighties, in the seventies, and then, and maybe the early nineties, right. Doing sales. And so that was their world. And, 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 and in order for a seller to be successful and they didn't have marketing behind them, they had to go and do fanatical prospecting. They had to go do it constantly in large quantities, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, and so, but that's, that was, that was what they could do back then, but this is 30, 20 years later. And so it's a different ballgame. You mentioned it earlier, Nelson, that the buyer behavior has changed with technology. And you also mentioned that they are 80% at least through their own process and journey. Once they get in touch with, with the vendor, if, if at all. I mean, if, if they have a self-serving checkout, then they might as well not interact with, with sales at all. What's, what's a, an advice that you would give, uh, give uh, to a startup, to a, let's say, head of sales in that position in a startup to what's the one thing that they should be doing to adapt to how buyers buy nowadays? Yeah. And before I address that, I just want to put out some numbers. This is from like Gartner and Forrester and Miller Hyman Group. So some names people in this space might recognize. Buyers today only spend 17% of their purchasing time engaging with sales, while the bulk of their time is spent researching independently online and offline and meeting internally with their team. In other words, with marketing marketing's influence, marketing's influence on them and marketing's influence on their peers. 70% of buyers fully define their needs before even engaging with sales. And another 44% identify the solution by themselves. Now, let's see here. In a survey of nearly 1,000 B2B buyers regarding purchasing complex solutions, 43% desire a seller-free buying experience. And that number jumps to 54% among millennials. So what I would say to anyone who's, who's listening in, buyers increasingly want to self-educate thanks to marketing and from, and from their peers who marketing is also influencing. They increasingly do not want to engage with sales as much, not until much later in their journey, only when they explicitly want to, and sometimes not at all as under self-service. And so if you are a company today, you should be marketing led, no matter how complex your product is, no, how much, no matter how much you sell your product for, no matter which industry you should be marketing led. Marketing precedes sales chronologically. The sad, tragic irony of prospecting and the predictable revenue model is that they recognize the importance of marketing. They recognize the importance of pipeline. They recognize the importance of having a sufficient amount of quality leads to feed sales. 
yet they get marketing wrong. And so, yes, marketing is the key driver of growth, of influencing buyers' journeys. If we introspect about how we like to be marketed to and how we buy things, it is because of marketing. We don't want some seller to come up on the street and, hey, you, you want to buy our socks or whatever, or, or, or telemarket us or knock on our door or, you know, anything like that. No, we, we want to be wooed by marketing, you know, all sorts of stuff, as you mentioned. And we didn't really talk about that, but I think it's important, you know, just to kind of high level, I won't go into all the marketing tactics, but like, if you look at, you know, any company and you see what they're doing from a marketing perspective or how you become aware of companies, it's their content, it's social media, it's their events, it's their co-marketing with other you know, people, their influencers, thought leaders. Hey, this is a podcast you're listening to. Some, you know, some guy that knows something about something and, you know, that might interest you. And, and Joseph has expertise and, and uh, on this. And hopefully that's why you're tuning in. You're learning something. You're being educated. You're, you're being entertained. I'm not very funny, but I'm trying. But, and then there's ads and there's, your, you know, there's your community and your partner marketing, your referral marketing. There's your recycle campaigns. There's there's a sponsorships. There's a million and one things which I help to unpack in the book and different examples of it to concretize a lot of that because there's within these, there's so many different tactics, this combinations and all this stuff that you can do to educate buyers and woo buyers that I didn't know when I was in sales development and sales. And so, yeah, you know, one of the tenets of the buyer-centric revenue model is to offer self-service to the extent possible and is desired. So whether that's beta access, whether that's a free trial or freemium or a demo in, or, or sandbox environment, or, you know, putting demo recordings on your website, putting product tours on your website. Like, it, you know, if a buyer doesn't want to engage with sales, similar to a lot of you folks who are listening to this, who we can introspect. Sometimes we don't want to go through the whole song and dance with sales. Sometimes we do, but to the extent that we do not, we should cater to that and we will win. And then the people that do want sales help are the people that sales actually wants, you know, to help because they're the right people that they should be helping and not the wrong people. And at that point in time, when marketing has done everything they can to, to prepare the buyer to get in touch with sales, sales then can go in for the home run. Yes, exactly. And so this is a big point. I think a lot of companies have really realized the inefficacy of having an SDR to manually qualify, schedule, and route website demo requests to sales. And they've automated this on the website. So when a buyer is interested in speaking to sales, they go to the website, they hit the get a demo button, and then they answer a few questions on a form about themselves and their company to the qualification questions. Hey, how big is your company? Hey, how much money are you willing to pay us? Thank you very much, whatever. And then once they're qualified, they get to book a time directly from a seller's calendar, which is wonderful. And then it eliminates all that manual headache and back and forth. And the, you know, thank you very much for your request. Someone will get back to you sometime. We don't know. And then you get a telemarketing call two days later, and then you go through the whole band process and it's kind of miserable. And there's a handoff between SDR and it's like crazy. So companies have already automated that. And what they saw is, and there's statistics around many such companies, but if you didn't automate that, 70% of the buyers that would request a demo on your website would never make it to sales, 70%. On average, it would take 11, 11 days for that buyer to meet with sales. Whereas if you automate it, it's three days and it's up to the buyer to choose when they want to do it and not up to your internal constraints of when the seller might or may may not be available. And so the win rate, and I'm trying to get statistics on this. I'm trying to find out if anyone freaking has a number, but I'm trying to find out from these companies, these, these software companies, if they can, I, I've seen some, I want more aggregate, but they, they have case studies where like the, the, the sales is win rate. 
when a buyer is automatically scheduled, qualified, and routed to them is, I think Chow, this might be from Chow now. I might be misquoting one of the software vendors, but anyway, they saw a 4X in their sales win rate. So this is like someone that spoke to sales and then they were four times more likely to buy because they had a great first impression, a great experience. It wasn't all this friction at, up front. They didn't probably go hit up four other competitors because they just wanted to get a freaking, you know, salesperson to help them out because they, you know, whatever. So you want to be the only vendor at the table and yeah, and not have to be with anyone else. And you want to be the first one there. So you don't want to be the last one to the party. So I, I think that's, that's, that is going to be very obvious on the outbound SDR side soon enough, when more people are running the comparison um, that I outlined that people to do in the analysis and as more companies start to transition. And already I've included some companies who have done this. So for example, Cognism is a, a software company that sells data, contact information to sales development. They were very sales development led. They brought in a marketer, her name is Alice. She's the chief marketing officer. She did proper marketing. And now they're marketing led and most of the revenue, all the growth, a lot of the, most of the growth, a lot of the, the efficiency is coming through marketing led, despite the interference, I would say from sales development there. And basically what she saw was when she compared sales development to marketing, the, the, from MQL, all the way from MQL to closed one. So when marketing was supporting sales development, all the way to closed one, it was a 0.2% conversion rate, but proper marketing leading to a website demo request was 4% conversion rate. That's like an 1800% increase. And so she was like, well, why don't we repurpose our talent and repurpose our, our resources to proper marketing? And keep in mind, this is a company that sells prospecting software to those who prospect. Imagine you were selling that to like IT or, or product. It's like, so, so I think more and more people will do that comparison. And, and that's just one aspect of the comparison the analysis that she did. I, I, I give people other data points that they should look at. But I think that that will be a very telling story. How important is data as a change facilitating factor for a sales organization to initiate that change? Oh, yes, massive. So the way that I recommend that people approach this is in a scientific experimental way in a gradual way. Crawl, walk, run, right? That's what we tell our, our B2B buyers, right? It's not rip and replace, like, you know, because again, these, these practices are fundamental and entrenched. They're not just like some like minor piece of software that you can replace and no one notices. Like I am the CRM that is going to, no, I'm just, you know, it's not that bad. And, and, there's not, and there's a good sales process, I'm trying. No, so what I recommend to people to do, the very first step is to gather data at your own company. And anyone can do this. You don't need anyone's permission. You can go look into your CRM. The numbers are there. I kind of outlined this for people. And so just gather that data where you basically compare sales development to marketing and a whole bunch of other metrics that I kind of, I give a menu of metrics to look at revenue, cost per acquisition, cost per acquisition, payback period, sales cycle, win rate, average selling price or average contract value, whatever you call it, number of opportunities, the dollar amount of those opportunities, the number of demo requests. And then you compare the resources or the, the, the that you put into sales development versus the resources, the time, capital, labor that you put into proper marketing. And then, wow, you realize, whoa, like I'm getting way more bang for my buck from one than the other. And then Basically, then I recommend once you have that data and the theory from this book, and there's more data, I won't bore you to tears with all the data that you should, that you should get, but you need the data to back up your case. And so you take that and now you have a business case for two experiments and you can propose that to leadership or if your leadership proposed that to ownership, ultimately ownership, okay, 
ownership are the decision makers and the pesky blockers. Okay. Leadership are the power users. Okay. They are the influencers now. So you need to take that data to them, get uh, buy-in for two experiments. The first experiment is to automate demo request qualification routing and scheduling directly on the website. During that testing period, which should be a few sales cycles. So you, you know, whether if your sales cycle is a month, two months, three months, you can track the results that you've, the metrics that you looked at in the initial evaluation, the benchmark data, and then track the efficacy of those or the improvement of those. Meanwhile, repurpose the extent that SDRs were doing that to ideally to marketing, to do proper marketing, content, social events, whatever, product marketing, whatever, they'll be thrilled. But if you can't do that, you'll likely have to repurpose them as, as I've seen and heard a lot to prospecting on the outbound side, but which, that's okay. Cause we'll talk about experiment number, number two in a second, but you repurpose them, get that, get that, get that under marketing's like, you know, bring that under marketing's roof. You'll see the results will be great. SDRs will be happy, whatever, you know, they'll be happier. Also during that time, give SDRs quote and commission relief. Okay. Give them quote and commission relief. Don't like screw them over with quote and commission and then tell them to go do something else. And like it harms them. And so full quote and commission relief, ideally repurpose them to marketing. They'll be much happier than being repurposed to prospecting and they'll deliver more value. And also what you want to do is to help increase the investment in marketing. So try to shoot for that. If you can, if not fall among the stars and just whatever, put them into prospecting. Now, experiment number two, very similar. Gradually reduce your prospecting, gradually reduce your, your prospecting by 25% increments. So if you're doing a hundred telemarketing calls a day, lower that down to 75 or, or whatever, whatever incremental percentage you want to do, just reduce it. Quota and commission relief to the extent that you reduce it. Okay. And then repurpose your SDRs to actual proper marketing, to content, to social, to events, to community, to partner stuff, to product marketing, to whatever, helping with ad creative, like design unlock the creativity and talent that your SDRs have that you are missing out on. It is the, it's the talent is great and excellent. The role is crap. Have them do proper marketing, track those metrics over a few sales cycles. And then you would, we will basically gradually unwind prospecting, help the talent that's in prospecting, keep and retain that great talent, but repurpose them to things that they already want to do and, and marketing. And then maybe they go on to sales or into operations or whatever. And then after a few sales cycles, you will have proven, proven that aspect of the model prospecting versus, versus a proper marketing. Now that there's a, there's an experiment, I, there's another similar thing I recommend to the sales assembly line, but I don't know if you have time for that. I put that in the book. It's kind of similar. And there's another thing I recommend for commission that I put in the book, how to go about step-by-step step and how companies have gone about this, how they transitioned a commission sales force to to a proper compensation sales force that you can similarly follow. So there is a there is a guide, there is a framework. Now, in addition to that, I have I have or I, once I publish the next update, the book probably in maybe two months time, which is immeasurably superior than the first edition. I will also create a community, a Slack community called the Biocentric Revenue Community. I know it's a very creative name. You know, I'm not a very good marketer. I'm a seller at heart, really. And so there will be peer group of like-minded people who you can talk with and discuss and ask questions and, and gather more data. And how did, Hey, how did you do that? And what, what are you seeing? You're in a similar industry or what ACB or whatever, you know? And so together we will figure this out. I do not have all the answers. I do not even have all the questions. I don't think I'm fully right on every single little thing. I'm just trying to get a discussion going and collectively we'll figure it out together and learn and improve. And, and, you know, maybe, you know, there's a totally different, better way of doing it than me, but I think that there's 
you know, there's some stuff, I'm, uh, you know, hopefully put people in a better direction, but we'll just figure this stuff out over time. It will take time, you know. That's very interesting that you are working on, on building a community because that's what we are working on at the moment uh, right now. So we want to build a sales nation community for sales leaders, sales managers who feel that things in the traditional sales is not working anymore and, and want to do things differently. So uh, we can have maybe an off-topic off discussion there about how to go about that. But nonetheless, even you, <laughs> even you kind of promoted the update, an upgraded book. If anybody wants to buy uh, your book, and it's called The Death of the SDR, Amazon, if I'm not mistaken, is the best place. That's right. So it's right now available on Amazon, the death of the SDR and the birth of biocentric revenue. And it's available on Kindle and you can download the Kindle app on your mobile phone or on your desktop. So if you don't have a physical hard Kindle, you can still read it either way. If you have uh, Kindle unlimited, it's free. If it's not unlimited, you're going to have to pay a massive, massive $9.99. So talk about a big fat ACV now. Yeah. And so eventually when I release this book update, I, I hope to then also create a paperback version. I know a lot of people have been asking about that and uh, also an audio book, although I won't narrate it because I know people don't like my voice. I don't like my voice. I will try to find someone good. There's any other people's <laughs> opinion of you is none of your business. I keep trying to tell myself that, but I always lose that argument, but you know, so, so, so there will be other, other formats. Also, you can find me on LinkedIn, Nelson Gilead. I put out a lot of content that I think is, you know, I try to make it a little bit more digestible, sometimes a bit humorous or whatnot, but it's very hard to get the full picture on LinkedIn, as I say. So you'll get little, you'll get little snap snippets and sound bites, you know, and you can see what other people are saying, which is very important. So look into the comments. Look at what people are saying against me in particular, because that's how you'll see pushback and from yourself and also pushback from other people in the company. And you'll learn way more from, from that than just taking it straight from me. I'm not like some messiah or something like that. So it's just like, you know, take things with a grain of salt. Don't take everything I say as, as the way. Yeah. No, I, th I think you're doing a, a really great job and I really appreciate you putting out all that content because it, it should provoke critical thinking. It should you know, you should kind of reflect on what you're doing. And, and, you know, if you don't have haters, you don't have an opinion. And so I applaud everybody who, who kind of goes against uh, what you're saying on, on any given post, because that means that you've got something there. There's something that is kind of friction and there's tension. And that's always a great indicator for change, for imminent change. Thank so, you. Yes. And I encourage everyone who does have an opinion, a legitimate opinion, but is always afraid to speak out, but they, you have a thought about how something is right or wrong or whatever, you know, you know, put it out there, you know, I, and, 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 you know, contribute to the community, help further your, your thoughts and, and, and your vision. So jump in, don't be afraid. Everyone's very nice. You know, yes, we disagree, but we're all, we all get along and everything like that. So yeah, don't, 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 don't be afraid to jump in. So the takeaways, please go to Amazon, buy The Death of the SDR by Nelson Gilliard. And number two, follow Nelson on LinkedIn. Nelson, thank you so much for your time. I've, I've, I really enjoyed it. It was a spectacular discussion and conversation. Thank you very much again for your time. And I'll see you on LinkedIn. Thanks, Joseph. See you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Sales Nation podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to honeycombagency.co.uk. If you loved this episode, head over to iTunes or Spotify to subscribe 
rate and leave a five-star review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you.